You know, we all need reassurance at some time in our life about something. Maybe different for you than it is for me, but reassurance is the action of removing someone's doubt and fear. And the disciples of Jesus, they sure needed reassurance because we've been talking over the last seven weeks about what they experienced as they watched Jesus hang on the cross and we learned each of those weeks the words that Jesus spoke from the cross as he was dying and he was still teaching during that time. But the disciples at this point now, they had a lot of doubts and fears because they had seen the mutilated dead body of Jesus, the one that they had followed the one that they knew was Messiah, and yet he was totally not meeting the expectations they had of Messiah, especially as he died. And when he was put in that tomb and buried, their hopes were buried with him. Their belief was shattered. Their dreams were gone. And the words that he spoke from the cross, the last words that that he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, they thought that that would be the last words they ever heard Jesus speak. They thought that nothing could ever be the same again. And they were right. Because it started with some rumors that Jesus' body wasn't in the tomb. And then they heard a report that Mary, one of the followers, had actually seen Jesus outside the tomb, and it even talked with him. And then this happened. Luke records it for us in Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 48. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. The whole focus of the message today is on this one passage. It's easy to read it and just kind of gloss over it. But there's some things that we can draw from this, some reassurances that Jesus was speaking to them that still are relevant for you and I today. First of all, he gave them the reassurance of his presence and the fact that he was 
coming peacefully and bringing peace to them. Look at it again in verse 36 and 37 of Luke 24. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. The first thing he wanted to do was speak words of reassurance to help start laying their doubts aside, helping them to overcome that and to overcome their fears. Because it says they were startled and frightened. They thought they saw a ghost, and wouldn't you and I? I mean, if you had seen somebody that you had walked with for several years and you'd heard him teach, and then you see him literally slaughtered, mutilated, saw a Roman soldier after he had drawn his last breath, take a spear and shove it into his side to make sure he's dead and his body didn't flinch. And when the soldier pulled the sword out, plasma and blood that had separated because he was dead had collected in the cavity and he just poured out of his body. And then you saw that body taken down and laid in a stone tomb. You would think you saw a ghost too if all of a sudden this guy was now standing before you talking a few days later. But I wonder if when Jesus said it was really intentional, he said, peace be with you. I wondered if he was doing it to remind them of something that he had taught them a lot while he was with them. And it's still words that he speaks to you and I today. When Jesus said, peace I leave with you, My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You know, peace doesn't always mean that everything is calm around you. Peace can come even when you're in the midst of turbulent circumstances. I remember a a story that I heard a, a good while ago that talked about a contest that they were having for artists who depict, they wanted to paint a picture that was depicting peace. And so each artist thought about what was peaceful to them and then they began to work on their portrait or their painting, their landscape. And so one artist painted that classic uh, picture of a field, a meadow with flowers in it and a tree by a pond, some people sitting under it and that was a beautiful representation of, of peace. But to everyone's amazement, there was one picture that was painted that was different than every other one that was submitted, and it was of a raging waterfall. And you could just see the turbulent waters coming down. And near that waterfall on the shoreline was a tree that had a large branch that came out and hung right over that raging water. And in the midst of all that chaos and noise and turbulence, there was a bird that had built a nest out on the very end of that limb right in front of the waterfall. And the bird had little baby birds inside the nest, and the mother was feeding them. That was the painting that won the award depicting peace. That's the kind of peace that Jesus offers in the midst of a world of chaos and turbulence. You can experience his presence, his protection, his sense of calm within you, even though everything around you may be chaotic. And this is what Jesus meant when he said, my peace I give you, not the kind of peace the world gives. I'm giving you something even better. So Jesus acknowledged their doubts and their fears, and he wanted to offer proof of his resurrected body. He wanted them to be reassured. So he goes on, and it says in verse 38, he said to them, why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your minds? And again, I think that's a question that he still asks us today because we at times when we go through life and bad stuff happens, it's easy for us to to let our hearts get troubled. Um, He said this, 
Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. He wanted to give them proof of his resurrection. Touch me and see. He said, a ghost doesn't have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? Because he wanted them to know a spirit is not going to eat food. He had a body. He was a resurrected and a glorified body. They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and he ate it in their presence. Jesus still gives us clues today and evidences of his resurrection. Many times we just don't want to believe it or we don't have eyes to see it, but Jesus wants you to be reassured that he is risen, he's alive. When we doubt the resurrection of Jesus, we're also doubting the promises of God. And when we begin to focus on our problems more than the promises of God in Christ, that's when we start allowing our heart to get troubled and our minds also to be anxious. So when Jesus asked them, why are you troubled? I wonder if he even did that again intentionally to remind them of something he had said to them and taught them before he went to the cross. Because his words are recorded in John chapter 14, before he was crucified, it wasn't too long before he was crucified, but he wanted to reassure them then because he knew tough times were coming. And so he said to them, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And I think it's interesting that he said, let not your heart be troubled. Don't let your heart be troubled because, again, that's kind of our default mode, isn't it? We go through tough times in life, we have difficulties, and the first place we go is we start worrying about it, we start feeling troubled because we're focusing on the problem, and Jesus wants us to remind, he wants to remind us that he is there in the midst of our problems, and he is there to give us a sense of peace and calm because he loves us. But he said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, many rooms, many places, in other words. If it were not so, I would have told you. If it wasn't true, I would have let you know this. And then he said this, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am there you can be also. Now, here's the thing. We have heard this sermon or this passage maybe spoken at a funeral service. It's used a lot at funeral services because it does give a sense of comfort in Christ. But when he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, I think a lot of us in our minds, we think, okay, yeah, so Jesus died, he rose again, he's going into heaven, and now he's getting everything ready. He's spending all of these thousands of years getting a place ready for us in heaven. And I'm not saying that that's not true, but I honestly don't believe that's what Jesus was referring to here because remember, he said this before he was crucified. He didn't say it after he was crucified. He didn't say it after he was crucified and say, oh, I'm going up into heaven now and I'm going to prepare a place for you. The reason he said it before he was crucified is because he was referring to his crucifixion. That's how he was going to prepare a place for you and me to be able to go to heaven and to be in a holy and righteous God's presence because he was offering his holy, righteous, sinless life and taking on death, the curse of sin, which is death. He never sinned. He didn't have to die. But he was preparing us a place because he was going to take the curse of death on his mighty, righteous, sinless body, and then he was going to whip it. He was going to conquer death 
overcome it so that through faith in him, we now have a place prepared for us in heaven because of what he did for us. And he even referenced the resurrection in that, I believe, because he said, if I go to prepare a place for you, think about it, the crucifixion, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. I believe he was talking about the resurrection. I'm going to show you that I'm going to conquer death, and I'm going to come to you, and I'm going to receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And then Jesus made this statement. He said, I, um, you know the place that I'm going, uh, and you know the way. And Thomas, again, this was before Jesus died. Disciples were still learning. They didn't fully comprehend everything that was going on. So Thomas, one of his disciples, said, Lord, where are you going, and how can we know the way? And then Jesus made this statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Now, here's the thing. His words wouldn't mean a whole lot if he stayed dead. His words wouldn't mean a lot if he hadn't risen from the dead because he said, I am the life. And if he hadn't conquered death, then how could he be the life? And he also said, I am the truth. And he had spoken and told them that he was going to die and he was going to rise again. And if he didn't do that, if he hadn't risen from the dead, if he just stayed dead, then he couldn't be the truth because he lied. He didn't tell the truth. He didn't conquer death. He didn't do what he said he would do. And if he isn't the life and if he isn't the truth, then he certainly can't be the way to God. But because Jesus rose from the dead and did conquer death, he proved that he is the life, he is the truth, and he is the way. And I know there's a lot of people today, and by the way, this was the second thing that we get out of this. The resurrection of Jesus brings reassurance of biblical truth. The resurrection of Jesus um, brings reassurance of biblical truth. Go ahead and put that slide up so everybody can just be thinking about that. Go ahead and there we go. <laughs> All right. Now, here's what, I, here's what I want you to do for a moment. And I'm not going to ask you to do anything too weird, but I'd just like to ask you to close your eyes. And I would like you to raise your arm. I hope you all have deodorant. If not, it's okay. But raise them up high. Raise your arm up high. Keep your eyes closed. And now I want everybody to point to the direction of north. Point to the direction of north with your eyes closed. Keep your arms up high. Take your index finger. I'm not seeing pointing. I'm just seeing hands up. So let's see those fingers. All right, now keep that up. All right, now open your eyes and look around. Hold them up, hold them up. Open your eyes and look around. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so some of you, some of you are right, but most of you are wrong. <laughs> and, and actually, well, I was going to say, so... From this position here where we're seated in this building, that way is north. If you want to go to Marietta, you got to go that way. <laughs> you can try going other ways, but you're going to miss your destination. So when Jesus said, I am the way, he, he meant it, I am the only way. There's a lot of people that are going to think there's ways to get to God. There's going to a lot of people that have opinions of the way to get to heaven, but he says, I am the way. And he makes it clear for us. And he said, I am the truth. And I know that there are a lot of people 
especially today. It's, it's been for quite some time now, unfortunately. But there are people who say there's no such thing as absolute truth. Now, just stop and think about that. If you say there is no such thing as absolute truth, are you saying that as an absolute truth? Because if you just proclaimed there's no such thing as absolute truth and you declared as an absolute truth, you just contradicted yourself. You see, there is absolute truth. I thought about doing it today, but I was afraid it might scare people a little bit too much for shock value. But I thought about bringing a blowtorch today <laughs> and lighting it. But since we do have a history in the church of fire, I thought maybe that's not a good idea. <laughs> But I thought about bringing a blowtorch today and striking it and lighting it and having it lit up here and then saying, okay, I believe it's an absolute truth that if anyone comes up here and allows me to put this against your skin and against your body, the chances are your clothes are going to ignite, you're going to light on fire, and your flesh is going to be burned. Anybody doubt that? If you doubt it, come on up, you know? <laughs> if it's all just relative, you know, if it may be true for you but not for me, then come on, let's try it out. So you see, deep in our heart, even though we say these things that may sound good in the culture we live in, it really just becomes an excuse to do what we want to do. But there is absolute truth, and the resurrection of Jesus reassures us of that. Had he not risen from the dead, then we couldn't know whether is there really any truth. But when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me, and then he conquered death and rose again, now he's showing us the way. He is north, so to speak, when it, speaks, when it talks about God in a direction, the way to get to God is through Jesus. Now, look at what he says here again to them in this moment with first words that they're hearing after he rose from the dead. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses the prophets, and the Psalms. Jesus was saying there, he was identifying biblical truth is truth. There is absolute truth, and it's God's truth because he created us, he created the world, he created the way everything operates. And yet we all know this. Even though we've been created by God, many people don't believe in him. doesn't change the fact that he did it. Uh, even though we have been created by God and he gave us a standard to live by, we don't do it. We kind of do our own thing. And it doesn't change the fact that there are still those standards for living. And Jesus said, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's basically the entire Old Testament, what we refer to as the Old Testament. And we refer to it as the Old Testament because now we're under a New Testament, a new covenant in Christ Jesus. But back to the Old Testament, he said, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me. And when you read the Old Testament, it tells us that God created us and he loves us, but we walked away from him, turned away from him, rejected him. God never stopped loving us. That's the whole story of the Old Testament. And so he began to work out a plan to redeem us, to bring us back to himself. And he worked through many different things, but one of the main ways that he used was a group of people that is referred to as the nation of Israel. And through that nation of Israel, there was a promise given that there would be a Messiah, someone who would come through that nation of Israel that would be born into the world that would be both God and man. And 
that person would be referred to as the Christ, the Messiah, and that he would save not only his people from their sins, but the whole world from the ways that we've walked away from God. That standard that's mentioned in the Old Testament that Jesus said, everything must be fulfilled that's written about me in the law of Moses, well, Moses wrote about a bunch of laws that the nation of Israel needed to follow, again, as a society that God had created and wants us to learn how to to get along together. But of all those laws, there's 10 of them, you know, that are highlighted. We used to have them posted in public places to remind people, but now people have taken those down and they say, oh, you know, you got to get with the times. That's no longer relevant. You know, we want to have uh, uh, freedom from religion, not freedom of religion. And so they take all those things down, and I bet you half the people in here couldn't, couldn't mention what those 10 things are. They're referred to as the Ten Commandments. And I'm just going to mention a few. But it started off by God saying, hey, since I created you, I don't want you to worship any other gods. You know, I'm the true God. I'm the one that loves you. I want you to, I want you to worship me and be in relationship with me. Well, we, we've not done that well. Um, he said, I, I, I want to set aside a day for you to rest and rest from your labor and use that time to think about your relationship with me and, and worship me on that special day, the Sabbath. We haven't done that well at all. Then he mentioned some other things. He said, don't steal. I mean, how many of you want to live in a culture where it's okay to steal? Like nobody can really own anything. You just, you, people come and go. If they want something, they take it. Who wants to live like that? So you see these absolute truths and these laws that God gave were actually good for a culture. He said one of those 10 rules or laws or commandments was don't bear false witness. Or in other words, don't lie. And, and the implication here is don't lie to the point where it harms someone else because you've said something untrue about them. You've, you've borne false witness and then they, they are injured because of your lie. Who wants to live in a society where it's okay to lie? Well, we're kind of there, aren't we? There are all kinds of things. Don't commit adultery. And again, this means to be true to the person that you're committed to and don't just walk away and get with somebody else when you feel like your needs haven't been met in that relationship. And I know this touches all of us, many people, trust me, I've counseled over the years. It's happened in my own family. My, My mom and dad went through divorce. So the point is, again, it's, there's still a standard and we're just so aware when we stop and you realize the standard is like, man, we have really fallen a long way. Well, Jesus says, everything that was written about me in the Old Testament, in the Law of Moses and the Prophets, has to be fulfilled. Here's just a few of those things. I mentioned about the Ten Commandments, but here's some things in the Prophets about, uh, about this whole concept. Ezekiel 18.20 says, the soul that sins will die. In Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3, here's one of the Psalms. There's many Psalms that actually are prophetic about Jesus. But here's one. It says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there's any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul affirms that and quotes from this. He says, for all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us have ever lived up to the standard that God intended for us when he created us. But again, it's never caused God to stop loving us. And in fact, we see another prophet that writes specifically about this Messiah. 
and it's in Isaiah 53, 5, and 6. Now, again, you don't have these on the screen. Just listen to them as I read them to you. And as I read this to you, remember, this is a prophecy long before Jesus was ever born, but I want you to think about Jesus on the cross as I read this. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. There's that word peace again, a peace the world cannot give. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, and each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now listen to this, just a few verses on down in the same prophecy, it says about this Messiah, he was assigned a grave with the wicked, he was crucified between two thieves, So even though he never did anything wrong, he was crucified and assigned a grave with the wicked. But then it says this, and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence. When you study the life of Jesus and what happened to him after he died, there was a wealthy man named Joseph of Arimathea who came and he was a follower of Jesus, but he was still kind of nervous and wasn't really out there about it. But he went and he requested to have, he requested from Pilate to have the body of Jesus after the body was taken down. And he was a wealthy man and he had bought a tomb that was going to be his grave, so he thought, but he wanted Jesus to be buried there out of respect for him. And so Jesus' body was, again, he was assigned a grave with the wicked uh, and, the, and with the rich in his death. Here again, amazing how Jesus fulfills all these prophecies. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And then, just a little bit later, in this same passage of Scripture about Messiah, it says this, after he has suffered, this is in Isaiah 53, verse 11, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. There it is, the resurrection is right there in Isaiah 53. We always hear the passage about he was bruised, you know, for our iniquities. We often don't quote the passage that says he's going to raise again. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. That's talking about you and I and everybody that puts our faith in him from that time forward. And Jesus said, everything that's written about me must be fulfilled. You see, he was saying that the biblical truth is the truth. Don't let the culture tell you that things are okay and not sinful when the Bible clearly defines them as sin. There is so much pressure on us today in the church and those of us who teach God's word and preach the gospel to be called closed-minded, narrow-minded, bigoted, uh, you know, phobic, about something, whether it's homophobe or whatever, you know, any kind of phobia. They say that we're afraid of this because, you know, we call some of these actions and behaviors sin. Now, God loves you. God loves all of us. Even if you're caught up in some sexual sin or you're struggling with your sexuality, it doesn't stop God from loving you. But it also doesn't change the fact of what absolute truth is. And So we need to make sure because Jesus rose from the dead, he is verifying this truth. And again, you can reject it. You have the right to do that. But in love, I am here to share with you the truth of what Jesus said. And then again, you make up your mind. 
So the resurrection of Jesus not only brings us reassurance, but the resurrection of Jesus brings us a responsibility. So look again now at verses 46 through 48. He told them, this is what was written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. I just read one of those passages that alludes to that. There are other passages. This is what was written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. He said specifically as he reassured them, here's what you need to tell people. Repentance is necessary for the forgiveness of sins. And it needs to be in my name. So what is repentance? Repentance is having a change of mind and a change of heart. You need to be willing to change your attitude about God, your attitude about the Bible, the Scriptures, your attitude about people who in love try to preach the truth and teach the truth and show you the way, point the way to Jesus, rather than looking at us as fools, which is fine, if you want to look at me a fool, it's fine. doesn't bother me. I'm more concerned about how Jesus views me than how you view me. And we all ought to be that way because we have a new identity in Christ. Your old identity, whether it's a sexual identity or a cultural identity, an ethnicity, a nationality, whatever it is, all that should be laid aside because now we have a new identity which is more important than all of those in Christ Jesus. Amen. He's made us all one. The scripture says there's neither Greek or Jew. There's neither neither male nor female. But in Christ, we are all one. We have a new identity as followers of Jesus. And we should love as he loved, but we should also live as he lived in a way that honors God. So repentance is having a change of mind about God and his word and about Jesus. It's having a change of heart also about what the Bible says about sin. And we need to acknowledge that what the Bible says about sin is true. In fact, John, one of the apostles of Jesus, after Jesus rose from the dead, writes this because he spent time with Jesus after Jesus rose from the dead. He writes this in 1 John 1, 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, in other words, admit it, admit that what we're doing is sinful or our thoughts are sinful. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Why? Because he loves us. And then it says this, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Why would it say if we claim that we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar? Well, it's because God clearly said, here is what is sin. I've recorded it for you in my word throughout time for centuries. And now if you're going to turn around and do these behaviors, which I have identified as sinful, and you say they're not sin, then you're calling me a liar. This is literally what God is saying. And we need to be careful because that's where we're coming to. And it's been this way for a long time, even before I was ever born. But it seems like it's magnifying more and more and more in this culture today. The more that we've cast God aside, the more that we've cast his word out of uh, our public places and try to just confine them into little church buildings somewhere and just keep it. It's okay if you believe it. Just keep it to yourself. Don't share it with anyone. Yet anything else you believe 
You can go out and you can celebrate and you can talk about it and everybody has to accept it. But oh no, you keep your religion and your Jesus to yourself, thank you very much. That's not what Jesus said. He said we are to proclaim it. We're to live it bold. We don't have to be arrogant about it. In fact, he hates pride. He, he, he resists pride. He gives grace to the humble. He wants us to have a humble spirit. But anyway, he says, if we claim that we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. And this is what troubles me about our culture today. There are many things that our culture is celebrating and talking about and embracing that the Bible clearly defines as sin. And our culture is saying it's not sin. It's just, it's just the way it is. It's just personal choice. It's a lifestyle. Um, you know, you just got to go with it. Somebody has to stand up and say, this is the truth, and this is what Jesus said. If any of this means anything about Jesus raising from the dead, and I do hope this encourages your heart. It convicts us a little bit. I know you wanted to come here on Easter and hear a message of hope and joy and have a nice little poetic thing and go home and feel good about yourself, but the resurrection of Jesus isn't about that. I mean, it is, but it's so much deeper than that. It's about realizing the truth of who God is and his great love for you and the lengths that he would go to to pull you out of your life away from him. And that's why it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then here's the hope. Here's the hope of the resurrection. My dear children, I write this to you that you will not sin, but if anybody does, because again, we're imperfect people, and even with Christ in our life, there's times we stumble, we fall, though our heart should not be bent toward that. If anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. An advocate is like a defense attorney. And because Jesus lives, he is always interceding for you and I. That means that you have a chance again this afternoon. You have a chance tomorrow. You messed up tonight. You got a chance tomorrow. You mess up right now. You got a chance three hours from now because Jesus lives. He is ever interceding for us between us and a holy and righteous God. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Romans 4.25 says, Jesus was delivered over over to our sins for death. Uh, He was delivered over to death for our sins. He was raised to life for our justification. That word justification means to be made right with God. This is the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. He not only died for your sins and my sins, past, present, and future, to show the love of God and to satisfy the justice of God and the judgment of God. But then he conquered death so that through faith in him we could be made right with God. And again, it has to be us coming to the way of Jesus, not asking Jesus to follow our way. So when you pray to Jesus, you are not praying to the past. You're not praying to a memory. You're not praying to a dead person. You're not praying to a fairy tale story. You are praying to the living Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave his life for you and me, and he is ever interceding for us, the living redeemer of your soul. The resurrection of Jesus brings reassurance. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 24 and 25 says this. Listen to this. I I think I got it on the screen. There it is. Yeah, look at that. Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives. 
to intercede for them. That's why the resurrection of Jesus is such a big deal. That's why Jesus is different than any other person that's ever lived, any other religious leader. He alone is the one true God-man, one mediator between a holy and righteous God and you and I as unrighteous and unholy people. Jesus bridged the gap and he did it through his death on the cross and his glorious resurrection. So the resurrection of Jesus gives us reassurance gives us reassurance for our past, forgiveness for our past sins, help for us in the present, and also he gives us security for the future. Just to wrap it up, again, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You can be assured if you're sincere in your heart and you say, God, I'm a mess and I realize that I've not been living the way that you want. I'm sorry. Forgive me of my sins. Help me live for you. Will you pray that prayer and you mean it on the authority of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, you're forgiven. And it's like he wipes the slate clean. You're purified from all unrighteousness. But then what about in the present time? After we pray that prayer, he helps us. He's alive and he can help us each and every day. Romans chapter 6, verses 9 through 13 says this, For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is why I say it's important. When you give your life to Christ, what he doesn't want you to do is say, yes, Jesus, I believe in you. Forgive me my sins. Thanks for coming along. Now I'm going to keep going the direction that I want to go in life. I'm going to continue my behaviors that even though your word says is not right, I'm going to do them anyway because you love me, right? We're good. That is not how God wants us to live. He rose again into new life so that you could have a new life, that you could live a new way, a different way, and a way to honor him. And this is what this scripture says in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Don't allow it to have control over you because Christ has risen from the dead and his Holy Spirit is powerful and he can help you to overcome the things that you struggle with. I'm not going to tell you the things that I've struggled with in my life. And even though I'm getting older now, there's still a few things that I struggle with. You know, we, we go through those struggles. But there are things that I don't struggle with anymore that I used to because I kept continually just going to the Lord and saying, Lord, I'm not happy with, with the way that I'm thinking. I'm not happy with the way that I'm doing. I know this isn't pleasing you. Forgive me. Guide me. Help me. And gradually over time, God has helped me to overcome and to live a different way than I used to and to think a different way. But it didn't just happen like that. Sometimes, you know, there's a process but God's Holy Spirit is there to help you overcome. So don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you may be, obey its evil desires because there's a lot of desires out there that aren't healthy for us, but we allow them to reign. You don't have to. This is the reassurance of the resurrection. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and every and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Start thinking of yourself not as you were, but start thinking of yourself as someone and something, well, someone that God wants to use for his glory. And then start learning what Jesus said about how to live and how to treat others and what you should do because he's alive and he will help you do it. So he can give us help for our present 
but then also he gives us security for our future because our salvation, our relationship with God, and us being made right with God is all about what God has done for us, not what we are doing for ourselves. The Bible says that by grace are you saved through faith, and that's not of yourselves. Uh, It's not of works so that no one can boast. In other words, you can't earn your way into heaven. It is a gift that God is offering. In fact, the Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You can receive that gift today if you've not. And if you've received it, but you haven't really been using it like you should, then today's a call. Jesus is reassuring you and reminding you, I'm alive and I want you to follow me and I want to give you the power to do it because you are my witnesses. That was the responsibility that he gave to those first disciples and it's a responsibility that he gives to us. You know, he gives us clues all in many ways of the resurrection. Maybe you won't agree with me, it's okay, but I think that sleep is an object lesson of death. Because think about it, no matter how hard we try to stay awake, uh, the longest I think I've ever stayed awake was probably 48 hours, and that was when I was a lot younger, you know, was out partying, doing some of those things that I probably shouldn't have been doing, and stayed awake through the whole next day and everything. But eventually you get to a point where you just succumb to it, right? You just, you can't stay awake anymore. Well, isn't that a picture of of death? We want to live as long as we can. We try to live healthy. We try to eat right. We try to do whatever because we want to live as long as we can. But eventually you succumb to it and you die. But here's the other thing. There's an object lesson of resurrection, I think, in every morning when you wake up or whatever time you wake up. When your eyes open and you're still alive and you climb out of that bed or you get up from wherever you're laying, that's an object lesson. Jesus is reminding you. I've done this for you. I died and I rose again. Every day is an object lesson of death and resurrection. Now, you may disagree with that, but I truly believe he gives us clues and evidences all around because he wants us to know this is true. And I'm going to ask you just another philosophical question. Why do we have to sleep? I mean, seriously, why do we have to sleep? I know biologists will tell you, well, because your body's processing and it needs time to rest. Well, who says? Why didn't evolution make us to where we just can keep going and going and going and we don't ever sleep? But we sleep. Maybe, just maybe, it was a clue that God gave us that I've created you, this is part of my promise, and if you trust me, even in death, you're gonna have resurrection. For those that believe in Jesus when they go to sleep and they die, man, they're gonna have a great wake up because they're waking up in the presence of Jesus. So I don't wanna digress too much here, but there are even testimonies. Here's the thing. We've never seen mass resurrections, right? We've never seen that yet in history. But there are accounts of resurrection. Jesus obviously is one of them, and there's evidence of that because the very thing that I've read to you today that Jesus spoke that was recorded is absolutely what is happening. He said, repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in my name to all nations. And that was over 2,000 years ago. And look at what's happening all over the world. Do you realize that in Ukraine right now, in Ukraine right now, There are many churches and Christians, and they are there. Their presence is there. And even though they are facing devastation and death, those Christians that are there are giving resurrection life, so to speak. They're giving people food. They're transporting them. They're helping them. There are churches in Romania and the neighboring countries. You don't hear a lot about that in the news. All you hear about is the social agencies. The church is alive and well, and and it's because his word has spread out to all nations. 
And though we haven't seen a mass resurrection, we have seen some resurrections. And in fact, there was a man who stood right up here on the stage years ago, and he shared a testimony of having a massive heart attack. He was taken to the hospital. He died while he was in the emergency room. The monitors all flatlined. And in that moment that he died, he, at the moment, he didn't know what was going on. But he said he was there, and all of a sudden, he saw Jesus. And he said he loves his family, he loved his job, he loves his home dearly and all that, but he said in that moment when he saw Jesus, he felt like he was starting to come back away and to come back into, I guess, his body, and he didn't want to leave. He wanted to stay with Jesus as much as he loved everything here on this earth when he was in the presence of Jesus. He's like, this is it, man. But he did come back. And testimony, his heart started beating again, he, he came out. Now, nobody prayed for him, he, but he came back from being dead. Now, no matter how you want to explain it, there are evidences of this, and I've even heard testimonies of missionaries on the field in places where there are no hospitals and someone has died and people prayed for that person and they came back to life. Whether you believe it or not, it's up to you. I'm just saying there are all kinds of clues and all kinds of evidences that the resurrection is true, and God wants to give you enough of this to spark your faith to believe in him. Will you exercise your faith to believe in him or will you exercise your faith to believe in something else? That's up to you. I close with this, Romans 10, 9, 13. You can be secure about your future because it says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, not only that he died on the cross for your sins, but you gotta believe that God raised him from the dead you will be saved. There it is. Reassurance. It's not based on any action that you're doing. It's based on the fact that you're placing your full faith and trust in the one who died for you and rose again to make you right with God. And if you receive him into your heart, you believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For, and, and you need to confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. In other words, you need to be willing to talk about it. You don't have to be obnoxious about it but you also shouldn't be ashamed about it. Jesus wants you. He said to his disciples, you are my witnesses. You are witnesses of these things. And as we trust Christ, we are those witnesses as well. For with the heart, one believes and is justified or made right with God. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The resurrection gives us reassurance that your past sins can be forgiven, there is help for the present in your life, and your future is secure in him. Let's stand and let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Jesus. And Lord Jesus, thank you for entering into this world that you created and becoming one of us and walking among us and yet retaining your full deity so that we could understand there is absolute truth and there's absolute justice and there's absolute judgment. And I thank you, Jesus, that you gave your life on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. But I thank you also that you conquered death to show us that death isn't the end of the story. And as we trust in you, that we too have a hope beyond death because it is all about a relationship with you and because you are ever living, you're ever interceding. So I thank you, Jesus, right now that as I'm praying to you, you're praying and interceding for me and for all of us. Thank you for the offer of eternal life. And thank you for giving us the opportunity to believe. 
Help us, Lord, to take the faith you've placed within us and to exercise it in you. Forgive us of our sins. Help us, Lord, to turn from our sinful ways and to turn to you and to learn to follow you and empower us with your resurrected Holy Spirit life that we can live a new life in you. Or ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. Just one last thing. We remain standing. I think it's important. Um, why did Jesus do all this? Uh, again, Jesus taught about hell. And he taught that hell was created not for people. This is another sermon for another day, but I just want to share this with you. Jesus taught that hell was not created for people. Hell was created for the devil and his angels because they had rebelled against God. And so that was the place that God was going to send them. But what happens is when we reject God and we reject this way of salvation that he has made, and we say, nope, thanks for doing that, thanks but no thanks, you're rejecting the only way. He has done everything to keep you out of that lake of fire, out of hell. And if you reject Jesus, you're rejecting the final thing. You're basically saying to God, thanks but no thanks, I'll go my own way. And in God's judgment and justice, he's going to say, okay, I love you. I made the way. You've rejected it. I've given you the choice. So here's going to be the consequences of your choice. And I've said it before. People, why do people want to live their whole life without God? And yet when they die, they want to go to heaven because that's where, heaven, that's where God dwells is in heaven. So you're telling me you want to spend eternity with God in heaven, but you don't want to even know him or live for him now? Doesn't make any sense. So you're going to get what you want when you die if you don't turn to God if you don't repent have a change of attitude and heart so just think about that because Jesus gave his life to keep you out of there out of hell he wants you to be with him he never created hell for us he created it for the devil and his angels and that's why he wants to keep you out of there but you got to decide who you're going to follow so Lord again in these moments as we sing help us to exercise faith, to trust in you. Jesus, you know the hearts and the minds of people that are listening to this message more than I do. And so I just pray you'll move in their hearts and help them to respond and help them to come to you and experience this reassurance uh, for all eternity in your name.